welcome to this week's ooh spooky <laughs> edition of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle and sometimes it feels like hour by hour. Uh, we are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has still never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm very happy to say Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis is back in town, BIT. Evening, Jess. <laughs> How are you, Charlie? Uh, well, there's Are the- you better? Yeah, there's the um, there's the there's the mundane answer to that, and then there's the kind of grim existential one. The mundane answer is I've got a cold that I can't seem to shift. This I'm hearing this a lot lately. Everyone yeah. needs a naturopath. That's all I'm I, I that that is the the view of Jess Lilly and not the station. <laughs> certainly not ever co-host. Um, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, on in on that note, um, our buddy Rachel Withers uh, is unable to be here because she's been finally for the first time ever felled by COVID and no naturopath is going to help you there. (laughs) Uh, Although I've got to say (laughs) when I did have COVID, my naturopath gave me some great drugs. Anyway, herbs, I should say, herbs. (laughs) Yeah, Um, is that not like completely against the whole naturopath? No, no, not drugs, herbs. I mean, I don't discriminate. (laughs) Anything that you can give me that will make me feel better is whatever call it mm. what you will um i do i do think it's quite suspicious that uh rachel was brought down by covid so soon for the first time ever so soon after she was uh she appeared in the canberra press gallery moderating a talk there so yeah, i'm just yeah. just going to put that out there sending you some wholesome healthy vibes from the studio rachel and hopefully we'll see you next week we're going to be chatting to professor rick Saar. Uh, who is an emeritus? What is that, Professor? Well, that's like so. It's. It, I mean, the, the way that our listeners might make sense of it is that they made Rupert Murdoch emeritus chairman of oh, Fox emeritus. Corpus. Right. So it's it's the idea that you kind of still you still hold the title and you still have involvement, but you're not doing the day to day grunt work that a, okay. a professor would normally do. So he's a floating. As far as I understand, I'm not that embedded in academic life that I know, but that's that's what I've always understood it to mean. Okay, so he's a floating above the cloud professor of law and criminal justice in the at the University of South Australia. And we wanted to talk to him because we want to talk about these recent law changes in Queensland, um, which are kind of bringing them up to speed with the rest of the country um, around uh, the media identifying um, accused and victims in sexual assault cases um, and how we've seen that play out in a number of cases over the last weeks. And, and we're just thinking it would be good to talk to someone about the history of that and where it might go. Uh, what else has been on your bingo card this week, Charlie? Um, well, I guess I, su- I suppose we can't really avoid mentioning the... Um the, the ongoing horror that we are, we are seeing um, in Israel and Gaza in particular, but also on the West Bank, um, which I believe you have some thoughts you would like to share. Very subtle. I, <laughs> it's, I mean, obviously, I think the thing that uh, stands out the most, given we are a media show mm-hmm. and um, the way the media is reporting the... Israel-Hamas war is uh, so um, 
in, inflamed at the moment. I mean, yeah, there are so yeah. many accusations of propaganda um, being, you know, propaganda from both from both the Israeli army and also from Hamas being directly reported out into media. Also, misinformation. Mm-hmm. Also, obviously, we are in the age of social media. I just saw a post earlier where someone on Twitter with a blue tick had reported had had presented some video, supposed video footage of tanks being blown up and someone very quickly, and they had a massive following, Mm. someone very quickly um, identified it as um, footage from a video game. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 This has been happening since the start. There was also footage that was supposed to be the initial horrifying attack from Hamas, which was actually from a Bruno Mars concert, which is people running to get closer to the stage because oh, they wanted to see Bruno Mars. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously another thing that, um, you know, um, a lot of media are being accused of is bias, media bias. Um, and, you know, again, this week, I think in the space of about five minutes, I saw the ABC accused of pro-Palestinian bias and then pro-Israeli bias. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we aren't immune from accusations of bias here at Triple R either. And, you know, I think it, we've been talking about this um, on the way here, Charlie. It can be really hard to find the right line to walk when covering something like this. You know, we've not, I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime, what we're seeing and, and what mm-hmm. we're, you know, we've obviously seen wars and different conflicts, but this is. Really, there's something really um, full on <laughs> in yeah. your face about this one. Um, and, you know, as a media show, we feel really strongly that Spin Cycle needs to keep discussing the ways this conflict or this war is being reported. Um, but what we don't want to do is add to misinformation or the hurt that many in our community are feeling following obviously Hamas's horrific attacks on Israel on October 7 and the resulting you know, terrifying daily bombing of Gaza by Israel ever since. And I I think it's fair to say, and we were just sort of talking about this before, our usual style of robust robust discussion slash opinion might not be helpful (laughs) when it comes to the horror of what is playing out in front of us all with this um, I mean, I don't even want to call it a story. I don't even, you know, we don't know what where it's going. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, with this conflict. Um, so we've kind of agreed that we're going to make a commitment to our listeners uh, on this topic. I can't commit to it on every topic because otherwise then I'd have to become a journalist and I absolutely <laughs> don't, don't want to do, do that. that. <laughs> but definitely when it comes to this, mm. we are it's a really simple commitment and that we're just going to share our sources. We're going to share the mm. sources of everything we discuss uh, and if there is no source, then we will endeavour to shut the fuck up about it <laughs> and keep <laughs> our opinions to ourselves. So yes, uh, no. I can I can only obviously uh, endorse that. I think that, you know you wouldn't be. I mean, well, what we what we know for sure is that this is something that everyone has often quite strong, quite quite painful feelings about, and you wouldn't be human if you didn't. Um, but uh, yes, I think you've you've put it very well. This is something where um, a <clears throat> potentially like flippant, um, offhand kind of opinion on it is not 
helping anyone and no. it's not what people tune into the show for and not what not what the show is seeking to at all um, achieve. Well, I, I do hope that some people tune into the show for flippant offhand opinion because <laughs> I give a lot of it, well, yeah, <laughs> but no yeah. longer on this subject. Um, we are going to keep talking about it though because I think, it, yeah, as yeah. I said, we, it is really important. And, you know, given that Spin Cycle is a media show, we will – take that focus or take that lens. So often if you're listening and you think we're not covering something that we should, we are really looking uh, at everything through a media or journalism lens. And I suppose um, on that, one thing that has been challenging, you know, from a media perspective um, is getting verified on the ground reporting, particularly within Gaza. Um, foreign, Foreign reporters haven't been allowed in. Um, but uh, but there are, of course, a lot of local journalists that have, have you know, been um, reporting. Uh, Al Jazeera has a bureau on the ground. Uh, Associated Press um, has local reporters. There are correspondents linked to various international publications. There was um, one of the um, episodes of the full story from The Guardian oh, right, um, this yeah. week f- featured a uh, – it was a really great interview with – with a correspondent for them. There's also one for the Washington Post. But um, there are, you know, as much as possible, there are journalists still reporting on the ground, which makes a report released by the Committee to Protect Journalists yesterday so tragic. The CPJ is an independent non-profit organisation promoting press freedom um, and they put out a report yesterday saying that from October the 7th to November the 1st, at least 33 journalists and media workers have been killed during the conflict, Um, 28 Palestinian, four Israeli and one Lebanese journalist, which makes it the deadliest period for journalists covering war since they began documenting these fatalities in 1992. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's horrifying. And I think it just puts a lot of um, what we talk about on the show into perspective, what people are actually willing to risk to do what is sometimes, again, a bit flippantly called the first draft of history, being the mm. first witnesses to, to these kinds of um, events. And um, <clears throat> one particularly of note, I think, for Australian um, audiences is the death of uh, Roshti Siraj, who yeah. um, was killed by shrapnel um, from an Israeli airstrike um, in his home in in, in, um, in Gaza. Uh, he had been uh, well. He was a freelance journalist who, among other places, uh, filed stories for um, Seven Thirty in the in the kind of the weeks leading up to his his death. Um, there was a, a vigil uh, held today. Um, uh, on behalf at the South Bank. No, sorry, not today. Um, yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Um, at the ABC South Bank offices uh, to kind of, I guess, play a proper tribute, as is, is what the argument that the organisers had to to Siraj, who they felt had not been adequately uh, recognised by um, by the ABC. Um, uh, Seven Thirty host Sarah Ferguson did acknowledge his passing and, and sent sent condolences to the family, but it was a very brief statement, and they felt that it wasn't um, really enough in terms of what he has. Sacrificed, I suppose, uh, for that show and for, for also just for the general um, understanding that, that audiences have of, of this incredibly um, messy and upsetting situation. Yeah, because a lot of those report journalists on the ground do are freelancing in essence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, it's a there's, a there's a whole kind of, I guess, almost industry was probably what you would say of... of um, both, yeah, freelance journalists on the ground in kind of conflict zones, but also the idea of fixers, people who are 
sort of embedded local freelance journalists who can then show around mm. Western journalists when they show up in Tel Aviv or they show up in Mogadishu or wherever it is. You know, you've kind of mm. got these networks of people that you, you speak to and they will be able to translate the interviews that you do. They can be able to show you where the refugee camps are. They can try and they're going to be able to organize the kind of safe passage to places that you kind of need to be at. So it's it's a huge, huge part of of how we come to understand kind of international events and uh, the risks those guys take is, is becoming, as you say, more and more clear. Well, that number of deaths is pretty uh, absolutely brutal. And mm. um, according to Associated Press, um, reports without borders, not going to say it in French because <laughs> <laughs> would, I would absolutely butcher it, has filed a complaint with the International Criminal, Criminal Court already regarding eight Palestinian journalists that said were killed in Israel's um, bombardment of civilian areas in the Gaza Strip, but also uh, an Israeli journalist killed during Hamas's attack in southern Israel on October 7 and... They are also calling on the ICC prosecutors to investigate the deaths of all journalists killed in the conflict because it is just astronomically high. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. In September of this year, Queensland laws around the disclosure of the identity of the accused in sexual assault cases was changed to allow for the naming of the accused once they are charged rather than when they are brought to trial. Uh, bringing the state into line with most other states and territories. The most immediate effect of this was the identification of Bruce Lerman as the accused in a Toowoomba sexual assault case. Here to discuss that and the implications for the media and for sexual assault law is Professor Rick Saar. Professor Saar is Emeritus Professor of Law at the University of South Australia, where he taught for over 35 years. A professorial fellow of the Australian Institute of Police Management and a South Australian patron of the Justice Reform Initiative. He was president of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Criminology from 2012 to 2016. He's been a go-to legal commentator for the ABC for many years and a regular contributor on legal matters for The Conversation and The Advertiser. Professor Saar, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Charlie. So for our listeners, could you just briefly kind of sketch out how these laws have changed in Queensland and, 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 what they, and where they kind of fit in the context of Australian law? Well, as you said, the law in Queensland has been changed to bring it into line with the rest of the country. But I say with some regret that South Australia changed the law in exactly the same way that Queensland did about five years ago, having had this law in place for at least three or four decades So here's what the law says. The law says now that once a person is charged and unless there's some other reason for a suppression, and of course there's all sorts of reasons you can have for suppression about the administration of justice or hardship to someone, but generally speaking, if a person's been charged, they can be named unless a suppression order is successful. What happened three or four decades ago in South Australia and more recently in Queensland is they had the good sense to say, When you're talking about sexual offences and charging with sexual offences, that mud sticks very, very quickly. So the best thing to do is to wait until the person's committed for trial when there's a prima facie case against them and don't name them until then and certainly don't name them when they've simply been charged. Now, that law in Queensland was dumped in South Australia about five years ago, to my regret, and dumped in Queensland most recently, again, to my regret, I really think in those circumstances the law should still be in place to say a person, particularly in relation to sexual charges, should never be named until such time as is a prima facie case and they've been committed for trial, not simply when they're charged. Very interesting. So how did this play out um, with Bruce Lerman in particular? 
Lerman obviously was arrested and charged earlier this year and immediately there was an application for suppression by his team, figuring that, generally speaking, that would apply, which it did, because it was a sexual offence and it, it was only a charge, not a committal for trial. Then the law changed and said that anyone who's simply been charged can be named unless there's some other reason for suppression, but not simply an automatic one. So when the law changed, immediately the Crown said, well, since the law's changed, we can now name him. They then, his lawyers, then tried once again on, on a more general basis to get a suppression, but it's very, very difficult to get a suppression unless there's a very a great overarching reason for that suppression. The main one is that if in naming the person you would name the, uh, the victims or you would basically bring hardship to other people who didn't deserve to have that hardship by virtue of their being related to the accused. So it was always going to be very difficult for Bruce Lerman to hang on to it. And in fact, if I recall, when the judge was looking at this particular matter, when it went on appeal to the Supreme Court of Queensland, the judge said, well, the funny thing is that since the whole Brittany Higgins matter was evolving, uh, Bruce Lehrman has gone on television half a dozen times yeah. to, to discuss his case. So it really was not a question of him in some way suffering some mental anguish by virtue of having been charged with this particular offence. So he immediately dismissed it, and, of course, we're back to square one. There are, there's another high-profile case in um, Queensland involving um, some some... Um, public figures or media figures, Channel 7 um, figures, that has had a different outcome from the Bruce Lerman um, result in that they have the judge has agreed to continue suppressing their names. What does this mean then in terms of, you know, it, it, feels, like, it feels like it's quite messy in terms of how this law is being applied? Yeah, well, insofar as now you don't have the complication of a matter being designated sexual and therefore having an automatic suppression, it's probably a little easier to run. In other words, you now have the same rule concerning suppressions applying to everyone. So I don't know whether this matter of the high-profile person involves a sexual matter. We don't know that because there's, after all, a suppression on, on all matters before the court. Uh, but one can only assume under the general laws and the general rules of suppression, which have always applied, that the judge is satisfied uh, that this particular high-profile person, if named, uh, would typically, and this is the reason, as I said before, for a suppression order, would typically therefore draw in his or her victim uh, by naming him or her. So this is a general mm. suppression order. That law has never changed. That's been around forever. So obviously... The, the judge has been satisfied that on a general suppression application, the name should not be released. And, in fact, it may not be released after committal either. I mean, suppression orders can apply right up until trial. In fact, they can apply through trial if the judge believes that somehow or other it would bring the law into disrepute or would harm victims to have that particular suppression lifted. So we don't know enough about this matter. It doesn't surprise me there's been a suppression. There's suppressions across the, across the board now. Um, the only thing that's really changed here in South Australia and probably across Australia as well is that now media can actually appeal a suppression order. They couldn't do that when I was in legal practice 20 years ago. They can now. So 
don't worry. <laughs> this person's got a suppression against him or her, but the various channels who'd love to name him or her will be at the Supreme Court's door or the, the appeal court's door right now to say, let's see if we can't lift this suppression. You, you hint there, I suppose, the, the kind of the media's uh, general approach to these matters, which is always, <clears throat> for obvious reasons, kind of in favour of disclosure, in favour of of, of of naming what they would sort of call transparency in these sort of matters. And, of course, we saw that play out quite high profile way, as you say, in the the the, the, the um, suppression order that was applied to the case concerning, say, Cardinal George Pell. Um, could we talk through a bit, I guess, a bit about the philosophy of non-disclosure, what that means in a legal sense, and and, and how that kind of idea of, of, of not naming people um, plays out and how it kind of developed? Well, let's take the Pell one. And the reason for the Pell one was exactly in relation to the fairness of the whole process. You'll recall that the suppression on Pell in relation to the later matters were because there was a, a trial going on in relation to an earlier matter. And mm-hmm. therefore, if there was a general uh, revealing all in relation to both matters at the same time, one would in some way infect the other. So that's a very good example of where a suppression does come into place to ensure that when a person's being tried on a particular matter before a jury, that that jury only hears the matters before them in relation to that matter and is not tainted by having to consider matters which are irrelevant to the matter before them. So that's another good reason why you'd have a suppression order. But look, I I don't mind suppression orders. I think that the administration of justice is sometimes far better served by having matters dealt with in the court and not having people in the court of public opinion running around with editorials and the press, etc., and, of course, these days with social media, uh, influencing the outcome of those particular matters. Now, that goes right against the view of every media outlet in the country at the moment, who, as far as possible, would love everything to be on display, as it is in the United States. But I would be the first person to say that I think suppressions are important to the administration of justice and certainly up until the committal, because if you haven't been committed for trial and the matter is eventually tossed out even before it gets to trial, then that person's name is besmirched, notwithstanding there's been a finding of not guilty or a matter's been dropped. So, look, that's just the way in which it works. I'm quite happy with the way in which suppression orders work at the moment. I would love to go back to the position where every state in the country said it was a matter in relation to a sexual matter, that one should actually wait until committal for trial. But I've lost that battle. The media has won that one. Rick, I, I mean, <laughs> devil's advocate. For <laughs> It's not just the media. I think that there's a general understanding that it's very hard to bring um, sexual assault charges in this country and, and for them to, to even get to trial or, you know. And, I, I mean, I guess that the media and a lot of the public would argue that it was in the public interest to um, to to have Bruce Lerman named as a, you know, defendant in another high-profile sexual assault case. What, what do you say to that, that, you know, you might want to see the law play out, but in fact the law actually doesn't work in the favour of sexual assault victims and perhaps this is something that can be helpful to them? Yes, yes, you're right. I mean, there is an argument. It's an argument. I don't think it's a strong one. But if a person has been named, other witnesses are likely to come forward and say, ah, that's the person. He did this to me. I can then add blah, blah, blah. And other, other people, the Me Too, the whole Me Too thing could then play out. And there's no doubt that's the case. Though generally speaking, the police would tell me that generally speaking, when a matter has got before the courts, 
uh, even if it has been suppressed, it's not unlikely for other people to come forward because the word gets around very quickly without having to be put on the front page of the Courier-Mail. Um, and I, I, I tend to think that, on balance, I would prefer not to have matters tainted by a media reporting because I don't think the media are in it to ensure that victims get their just outcomes. The media are in it to sell their media. There's no question about that. You say, uh, we're about to name high-profile person. Everyone goes out and then subscribes to that particular media source. There's no question about well, that. Well, I mean, there was, I mean, everyone sort of, there was a general understanding of who the, you know, the, the high-profile man in Toowoomba was anyway. In the age of social media, it's really hard, I suppose, to keep that sort of thing under wraps and... You know, some might argue it's better for it to be um, aired in public than just rumour and innuendo flying about people. But what does that mean? What's the knock-on effect in terms of how that case plays out now? I mean, is there a possibility um, that that this can work against someone who brings a charge against a high-profile defendant in as much as um, it's very un- it's very unlikely that they are going to have a fair trial, or w- what's the knock-on effect there? Yeah, look, and, and who knows? I mean, this is where there's a lot of conjecture. On the one hand, uh, the defendant's counsel would like to say, well, I don't think he can now get a fair trial. There'd be an application, blah, blah, blah. And in those circumstances, if there is so undue publicity about that, it's possible from time to time where a person actually wouldn't be proceeded with because of the unfair nature of the pre-trial publicity. On the other hand, um, there's the possibility, of course, that um, a person who is, uh, who is, is high profile in that regard uh, might see it uh, as, as a disadvantage because then a jury who is now listening to that particular plea later would be more likely to find him uh, guilty. So it, it kind of works both ways. I, I, mm. I tend to think, however, that uh, the juries and judges do tend to apply their minds appropriately. I'm the first person to say I've always thought the juries actually reach the right conclusion in these matters. And to the extent that a judge can nurture them through that and say, look, don't worry about pre-trial publicity, don't worry about what you've heard, um, and, 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 and try and apply all the facts of this particular case, you'll generally speaking get the right outcome. We can only hope that happens more often than not. Which does raise the question, I suppose, um Rick, of of say uh, say someone like Russell Brand was had happened in Australia, and there had been this very high profile reporting accusing him of certain things, and then he is accused of a crime. How does the legal process kind of account for something like that? What do you mean the pre-trial publicity? Yeah, and the application yeah. of his defendant, his, his defence counsel would say it's not possible for him to get a fair trial. Mm. Let's not try him. Now, look, that doesn't that doesn't happen very often. Typically, if you believe that um, you, you couldn't find a jury that wasn't badly tainted, what you would then do is is to shift the trial somewhere else. There's a very good example of that. It's before you were born, but we go back to the guy who drove <laughs> a truck into. Uh, into a hotel near Ayers Rock years ago, and all the people who otherwise would have been on the jury would have been people who knew that particular, uh, all the victims who were in that hotel at the time. So they shifted that particular trial to Darwin, away from Alice Springs. So it is possible to move a jury, um, and that can happen. You hope the publicity is not so bad as that a judge would never say, this person can't get a fair trial and drop the whole thing. 
Uh, in relation to Russell Brand, I think that's probably not a bad idea when all of a sudden these matters are before you and other witnesses which, who, and victims who did come forward and say, well, actually, I go back and that happened to me, it happened to me, it happened to me. And so, I'm, I'm half agreeing with Jess there to say, in some circumstances, yes, that can work. But on balance, I think it's far better to let the court processes unfold in a way which is strictly in accordance with the law without having all the hairs running in relation to social media. I should make one other point, too, that we made before about the way in which this works. Suppression orders are state-based. They are jurisdiction-based. Mm. In other words, the suppression in Queensland would only apply to Queensland. In fact... What, what used to happen in the days before we had social media was that the border was the border. So if you weren't printing it in the South Australian or the Queensland press, you could always print it in Victoria. In fact, during the, uh, the Snowtown matters, I was calling up my sister in Victoria asking what she was hearing in the Victorian press because mm. there was no suppression order there. Now, of course, that's all gone by the by, even yeah, though we still, we still have this ridiculous notion that a suppression order stops at the border. We now know that social media and media generally applies Australia-wide. So one of the reasons that Queensland did drop this particular requirement about the automatic suppression for sexual matters is because they were then the only state in the country that did that. So there was absolutely no point at all having Queensland hang on if every other state was doing it differently. So a national approach makes a lot more sense. Rick, I want to take you back to one more, one thing that you said at the beginning. You said that, um, you know, it can completely sully or besmirch the reputation of someone to be accused of a, a, a sexual assault or a crime um, like this, and which is why they shouldn't be named until they're at least um, convicted. What does it do to... A... No, 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 com- no, committed for trial. Sorry, Not committed convicted. for trial. Committed Sorry. for trial, yes. Yeah. But what does it do for a victim in this situation, though, or someone who's bought a charge against someone who who might have, you know, experienced sexual assault? You know, if, it, it does seem like it is in their best interests <laughs> for someone to be named pub- publicly, or is it? Yeah, look, again, Jess, that's a broader debate um, because, as you know, and as we all know, that the possibility of getting a conviction in relation to a sexual matter is almost minuscule. Yeah. I'd be guessing it's probably 5 to 10% of matters that are actually brought to the attention of police in relation to sexual assault, typically male on female, would ever get to a conviction. Really statistically. To, to, to statistically, it's very unlikely. Mm. Now, if the argument, and I'm not suggesting this is your argument, is... If the argument is that somehow or other the victim wins because the creep has been named, notwithstanding he's never found guilty, then that's not, not your a words, strong not argument. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but there'd be a lot of people in the community who'd say, well, if it's only 5 to 10%, if we can name this person very early, after the arrest, after the charge, even before the committal, then somehow or other I'm getting some satisfaction this creep it actually being named and shamed, notwithstanding there's only about a 5 or 10% chance that he'll get convicted in the end. Now, I'm not suggesting that's what they do think, but I suggest there'd be some but, people who but would might it, that. But might it also um, be a preventative measure? I'm just, and again, I know we're in purely philosophical terms here, but I also just understanding my knowledge of, you know, people I know who have been in a position where they haven't even, they've even ended up dropping charges because the process would have been so 
uh, arduous and expensive and um, it, it was better for their health and well-being that they didn't even pursue it to, you know, to charges. And if you're saying only 5 to 10% of, of, of um, cases that even do make it to any kind of a charge... Uh, you know, any, any kind of conviction, yeah. right, right through the conviction. Yeah. So, so perhaps if you could name people, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to understand how can we make this system more just for victims who are clearly losing at this point in time, when very few cases even make it to any kind of charge, let alone a trial, let alone a conviction, um, and we're talking about a law. Um, you know that you might not agree with because you think it besmirches the name of a defendant of a of a crime, but actually it's the it's the victims of this crime who at the moment are completely unrepresented because they're not even making it to try, to court. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. Let me let me just pick up on that and thinking again aloud here and outside the box. My guess would be and my argument would be against that is to say that if. We wanted to have more confidence, which is, I think, what you're asking, and, of course, I think everyone would be asking, there's more confidence of young women or mm. old women um, to, to proceed through the horrendous process which they have to go through in making these sorts of allegations. Yeah. One would have thought, again, this is not my area of expertise, but I'm, I'm just kind of speculating here, that if the matter were kept pretty much under wraps so that the accused is not named... She is then not named by virtue of the fact that no one knew that she was actually partnered to him or going out with him or whatever. Yeah. And that way, the whole process would then unfold in a way which was not subject to the glare of the public light. Mm. And my guess is, I'm just guessing, though, my guess is that in those circumstances, the police would be far more circumspect in relation to what they would say to the media. The media would have no interest whatsoever because they can't name anyone. And the whole matter might play out far better than if the high-profile person who's then named says, this is outrageous, this never happened, she's, you know, a terrible person, etc. And all of a sudden, the, the rumours start to run. That particular person is named and, of course, named and shamed in a way which should never have occurred. Now, I'm just speculating there. I can't you make see a good argument. You, sh- you should be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't suggest that the whole exposing everything that the public life, as soon as the charge is made, is in some way going mm. to make the victim's experience any better. Yeah, I suppose. Look, we've 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 forced you into into a lot of conjecture here, Rick, and I, and I apologise for that. But one, no, you don't need to apologise. But we appreciate you. But going we do appreciate there with yeah, us. yeah. Um, but one thing I'm, I'm interested to get your your take on is obviously. We've we've had a couple of tests of this new law in Queensland, um, but it is a, a, you know very young law, and ultimately. Oh, let me be... just say, no, it's it's actually going back to the original position. Queensland changed its position. I'm, I don't know about much about Queensland. I'm guessing probably about the same time South Australia did. Oh, I see. So this idea of actually having the automatic suppression would only have come in in my lifetime. Is what I'm saying. I see. So you've gone back ah. to the status position. This wasn't something that used to apply. This was something that came in the 1980s to say, wouldn't it be fairer not to have a person who's charged with a sexual offence um, exposed to the full glare of the media until such time as they're committed for trial? So all they've done is they've experimented with it like South Australia did for a few decades and then dumped it. 
Does that sorry. mean? So, sorry, sorry, Rick. Um, does that mean that the the interpretation of the law, the kind of the precedent, I suppose, that would be informing the magistrates' um, interpretations of this, now would revert back to the previous system, or does it kind yes. of start fresh? Right. Yes. No, no. The, we'll go back to the, all the previous precedents about what it is that guides suppression orders generally, and not have the specific uh, legislative amendment which would have had to have come in to talk about the, the immediate automatic suppression up until committal. That would have been a change of the legislation as it was here in, the South, in South Australia back in the 1980s. And what happened was eventually that amendment was dumped. So it came in and then went out again. So we now go back to the normal rules of suppression, namely typically so that a victim is not harmed, so the administration of criminal justice is appropriately applied and 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 justice is not brought into disrepute. Those are the general principles about suppression. So we're back to where we were for the last 150 years. Well, on that note, um, Rick, we will let you go. Thank you so much for making some time to chat with us. That was a really fascinating and very illuminating chat, and yeah, we really appreciate you making some time for us. Well, it's, it's broadened, it's broadened my, my thinking as well, oh, too. That's, that's, that's uh, wonderful. I've, I've enjoyed that. I'll, I'll have to go and think about this a little more. Now that I can hang up here. Well, you're always welcome back to chat with more if you come to some more, more conclusions. Anytime. Please do. Thanks very much. Bye Thanks bye. so much. Thank you so much, Rick. Triple R. You know, I feel like we're hearing a little bit too much from ex-Prime Ministers. One in particular, um, Tony Abbott is back on his bullshit about the environment. Charlie, you did some painstaking (laughs) research this week for your column. Yeah, this... Where you actually uncovered... The 25, it's like the 12 days of Christmas, but (laughs) it's the 25 days of the climate apocalypse, according to Tony Abbott. Honestly, like, and I, 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 it could have been more. I I, I had a deadline meant I was like, 25 is a good round number. Let's keep it at that. So can you please fill us in on what you uncovered? For sure. Yeah. So um, former uh, Prime Minister Tony Abbott um, was addressing that there's in this week, there's been a... um, a conference of the the sort of first conference has been held by a group called the uh, Association for Responsible Citizenship that was been that's been founded Ugh. by I, well <laughs> straight away horrible. a bit of a vibe right yeah <laughs> um, uh, sorry alliance for responsible citizenship not oh, not, not association it was well it was formed by a Canadian. I, I, I use the word sparingly public intellectual um, Jordan Peterson. Um, oh, British... dude, you did not have to use the word intellectual when it comes to Jordan <laughs> well, Peterson. Well, it's, it's, you know, I, 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 I sort of struggle to go, well, what is, what is his job title? Author, Canadian conservative author, I suppose. Weirdo freak? Um, no. Look, <laughs> um, he's a free speech warrior. He probably wouldn't mind you saying that. Yeah, exactly. Um the former, actually, former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson of, of this country was also, also one of the founding members. That also does a members. disservice to genuinely cool weirdos and freaks as well. That's so true. Actually, yeah. I know yeah. I need to think a little bit more. Retract. <laughs> retract, yeah. retract. Yeah. Um, who was actually quite a moderate um, conservative. Sorry, this is a former Prime Minister and national uh, leader, John Anderson, when he was in politics. He was considered a relatively moderate figure, but he's taken a bit of a sharp turn to the right <laughs> and now interviews people like Peterson. Um, and uh, British life peer Baroness Stroud, um, have, they formed this group called the um, yes, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, and they've had their first conference in London over the week. That's but it had a huge Australian contingent at it. Uh, 
former Prime Minister John Howard, former Prime Minister uh, Scott Morrison, oh, Tony Abbott, as we're going to get to in a Losing second, Bound to be Joyce, uh, Andrew oh, Hasty, a huge number of um, of, of it, you, you feel at home in the worst possible way. If Where you was were this conference? It was in London. I'm surprised that we didn't feel a general lift <laughs> in you know just like just didn't feel a the, sense that like the culture wars might have just been put on pause for a bit. Yeah, yeah. when they left the they all left the country simultaneously. I'm surprised we didn't just feel a moment of joy. Uh, are they still out of the country? Perhaps there is something in the air, a frisson in the air. Well, they, they, the, the, the conference uh, finished on November 1st, so I suppose they probably are, I don't know, they might be, you know, doing what, doing some like family kind of history stuff or, I don't know, enjoying <laughs> what's available in Europe. I don't know. Um, but the thing that kind of came out of it, one of the many things that came out of it, there was... Uh, there was John Howard who uh, told GB News that uh, he'd never oh, really yeah. been sold on multiculturalism, which is, I think, a funny one in some ways because, like, that uh, – nothing really demonstrates just how radical and new conservative thought can be than getting someone to, like, reheat something that they first said in 1988. <laughs> and, and so the other, one of the other things that came out of this was a, 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 a speech that Tony Abbott gave launching a, a paper um, by the Institute of Public Affairs, which was a – a small, uh, you know, boutique <laughs> event um, <laughs> on the sidelines of the ARC. ARC, actually, they prefer to be pronounced as ARC. Um, basically saying that uh, he had never once believed in climate change, um, uh, that it's, it's utterly, it's ahistorical and utterly implausible, and that this cult, climate cult will inevitably dis- be discredited. I'm, I'm quoting <laughs> Abbott here, by the way, and I just hope we don't have to endure an energy catastrophe before that happens. When that came up... Um, it's something that Cracky has been doing for quite a while, is kind of collecting his views on this matter, which seem to change with the seasons. Mm. Um, change, they change as much as the climate does. <laughs> so we did a list of, and it could have been more than 25, but his 25 core beliefs on climate change, all of which completely contradict all of the others, which is quite, which is quite fun to kind of put. So there's, there's his current contention that he's never believed uh, in climate change. And then there's one from 20, 2010 where he said, I've always believed in climate change. There's him saying that uh, in 2011, when he was sort of gunning for government as the opposition leader, that we believe in climate change, climate change is real, we believe human makes contributions towards climate change. But then in 2019, 20, uh, 2009, he obviously famously said that he believes that the scientific arguments behind climate change are a load of crap. Um, then he's also said uh, that the science isn't settled. He, does, he says that a lot. He goes back to the, the idea that um, I'm highly unconvinced by the so-called settled science on climate change. He said that so many times. I, it's you know what something that's interesting about this is these. I didn't realise that um, I, I, I saw these headlines in passing in a number of you know mainstream media outlets here and didn't realise. These um, they they were saying these things at a conservative conference in the UK, and yeah. it's slightly disappointing. Not slightly, really disappointing <laughs> to me that that our mainstream media are still reporting yeah, yeah, yeah. this stuff as news. Because I saw the John John Howard making that point on GB News about multiculturalism and Tony Abbott in just in passing in you know our mainstream news yeah it's it's a, it's a really interesting why? question why are they even it's, reporting it's a really this? interesting question about what when does um someone and that's part of the point that i was trying to make with the um with the piece um I, 
I just, there's a few I want to add sorry, to this. Sorry, sorry, I interrupted it's fine. you because I was um, having an existential moment. Of <laughs> no, no, and I, we, we'll, we'll get back to that for sure because <laughs> it's important. But he also said that, you know, climate change definitely does exist, but it's a good thing. In 2017, he was like, it's actually good for plants that things get hotter. People die when it's cold, but they don't die so much when it's hot. Oh, my God. Um, and then there was a lot of, like, cult stuff. Um, <clears throat> the climate is changing and it's always been changing forever what year are we in now? that's 2010 and uh-huh. 2023 both of those uh are references to he said that um actually no he did that he did this in 2009 2010 and 2023 does this depend on who his speech writer is i, I, I think time? it does well it depends i mean i think that's the thing is that part part of it is that he's been unhinged from the need to be electable in the last three years shall we say so um that's probably slightly yeah. it's his changed advisors his, as his, opposed to him. And he sort of really. actually pretty much explicitly says that in his speech to the IPA. He says, you know, that um, I, I would didn't always mean talk... that. No, no, he would pretty much. He would say I would talk about it as as you know as opposition leader and then prime minister. But I'd always say that no 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 mitigating factor against climate change ever ought to cost people their jobs. And when I and this and this is again a direct quote. And when I was feeling particularly bold, I would add things like. I would say, you know, 10,000 years or so back, there was an ice age. And that was rather a dramatic climate change. But presumably that had nothing to do with mankind's carbon dioxide emissions. And he does that a lot. He did, um, he did that in his early days yuck, as, yuck, as yuck. opposition leader. He would do that a lot where he said, well, yeah, the climate's changing. He's such a but funny it's, guy. It's been, it's been changing since the days of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and Julius Caesar. It's uh, grapes grew in Roman times in Britain, for example. You know, he does that kind of thing. Um, that is a general line of um, from climate denialists. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other one that he did a lot, which which no one does anymore, which is the climate was changing, but thank God it stopped. <laughs> he said a lot of stuff like, oh, yeah, there was there was some stuff, but around 2009, the argument from a lot of, like, climate deniers was, but luckily, in the 90s, it was, like, those major climate change, but luckily, that's kind of stopped happening now, so it's basically fine. Or it's or then he started saying it's getting colder, <laughs> actually, if you anything. Know, you know what I think is, like, you know when you get... Um, like you get sacked from a job but um, they don't want you to go to a competitor immediately and you get put on gardening leave. Have you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, this, there should be a Prime Minister's gardening leave and it is essentially forever. It's like if you want to keep getting your pension, if you want to keep getting your privileges, mm. you shall Shut up. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you zip yeah. it. There's no more media for you. Like a, just a, a general NDA for prime, in, prime ministers. You can. This not, is one of the few times that we're going to say that we're actually in, we're in favour. This is of the that. only NDA I'm ever in favour of. I don't know. I, I, I quite like. I, I like what what gets disclosed from you know the 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 rant, the kind of the post. Prime Minister careers of people like Temple and Rudd, I, I think, you know, I mean, it, it can get and a bit the, tiresome. The squawks of oh, Keating as well. Keating, exactly. I mean, yeah, 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 that would be, I mean, w- would we want to be without that? I, I don't know. <laughs> we, but, you know, like we, full disclosure, we would obviously have Keating on this show any time. Uh, Paul, if it you're was, listening. <laughs> we would I'm break sure our pol- no pol- politicians <laughs> rule for Keating. And yes, I am displaying some bias, media bias. <laughs> we aren't the ABC. Well, it's, but but you're right. But I think you've you've you've, you've we, we should get back to the serious point you were making before, which is, yeah, how at what point does someone, um, whoever they are and whatever they did previously as a role, at what point have they discredited the, discredited themselves on a certain subject? And I think that like, why do we have to report exactly what they said? Abbott says why? Yeah, and and particularly on climate change because mm. it is demonstrable that he has. 
uh, changed his mind every six months or so for the last 15 yeah, years. Exactly. Um, and that his view is completely out of sync with, with the vast majority of scientific consensus and has been ever since he started doing it. Why it is important to be up to date with his views on that, apart from the fact that it gives us all a bit of a, a, a merry glow of, of fury in the morning when we click on that link, which I suppose does answer it. Um, but apart from that, there's no there's no real public interest in knowing what no, he thinks on this subject 100%. anymore. Ah, that's right. Triple R. I was going to, we were going to mention the fact that um, today Erin Patterson has been arrested in that suspected mushroom poisoning, um, the deaths in Lee and Gatha. And then it was, we were just like, oh, that's actually quite sad and yeah. well, there's yeah, still a lot is, to yeah. go there. But the fact that that has garnered so much interest, I mean, I just put in a search, Google search, and already it was being reported within sort of minutes of that becoming public. It was being reported by CNN. It was being reported by right, the Indep- right. in the UK. It was being reported globally, which then made me jump to something that I have watched on uh, Netflix over the last couple of nights. Um, and it, it does relate to a guest that we had um, very early on this show, actually. Um, and it, it was this last stop Larimer. And mm. I don't know if you remember, we spoke to um, Michael Miller, who was a reporter for the Washington Post in Australia. And we were talking about mm. what an awesome job. Yeah, a dream <laughs> that gig that way he was. Because yeah. he just got to, you know, travel the country and report these really weird parochial kind of Australian stories. And one that he spent a lot of time on was this infamous kind of case of um, Paddy, oh, God, I should have brought the thing up. Uh, anyway, a man in Laram, one of the 12 residents um, was what well, disappeared. Moriarty, which is Paddy an incredibly Moriarty. theatrical surname. To He's from yeah. Irish heritage. I can mm. tell you with this because I watched the show. <laughs> um, disappeared alongside his dog in Larimer and then it became uh, an incredible whodunit, um, which then unraveled what's the, the, what's the um, toxic fabric yeah. of the town. Basically, everyone hated each other. There were feuds <laughs> going back decades. But, the, the, I mean... A town of 11 people. 11 people, that's well, right. It was 12 a... until um, well, yeah. <laughs> Patty disappeared and then it became 11. And now they've turned it into this two-part Netflix series and it is it is unbelievable. I, I don't know how... It's one of those sort of gifts where someone must have gone and interviewed people there a long time ago and they had a lot of footage with Patty um, to weave yeah, through. Yeah, right, right. Um, but on that note... It's time to go. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. 